In a weird way, a lot of my memories go back to um, Lara Croft. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm Roger. And welcome to The Middle, where we try to have thoughtful conversations about awkward topics on our search to find the middle. A few moments ago, Buckingham Palace announced the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I act as if God exists. Put your masks on. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams, my childhood, with your empty words. Have you seen that series on Netflix, Into Drive to Survive? No, um, the Formula One one. Oh, there's so many of these sports documentaries. There was like a tennis one that I started watching and gave up. I was doing my head in too much Nick Curios. Hey, what's, your, what's your take on, on Curios? I don't, I don't know. I just think he's a little bit of a like a whinger. Like he's just got to like suck it up and either just play or retire and just like yeah. I I have no time for like people who can't figure out what they want in life. If he's like earning millions of dollars a year and you're not happy doing what you're doing, you've got enough money. Just quit. Do what you actually want to do or commit and be like a top ten player like he's meant to be. But I just hate all this like whinging stuff. I don't have time for it. Yeah, I think is part of the entertainment though right in a- well it is it is to an extent but when he like darts you know berating his like box and gets a bit awkward and it's not really entertaining anymore it's just a bit tiring the whole like underarm serves and all that stuff and that's all a bit of fun certainly he's um able to like roll up a crowd he's like entertaining to watch he plays a good brand of tennis he's a brat right <laughs> he's he's a bit of a bro a bit of a thug kind of thing in terms of personality i don't mean that as you know in, like the real sense but I think there's an entertainment value, right? And even when he is berating his box and, and going off and yelling, at, like I think that's part of the the mental warfare of the game as well. That throws his opponents off, right? It's a new thing for them to deal with his volatile nature. But I'd, like as soon as you see him in that mindset, like that's usually when you know he's going to lose a match. So I, uh, I don't think <laughs> it's a net benefit to him. I think it's just if anything, he loses concentration. And at the end of the day, he just, he actually doesn't like losing. And in some ways that's good because it it gives him the competitive edge, but like, he's such a hard loser, like just get on with it. Be a good sports person. Like have, have like, there's no sportsmanship to his game. He's totally right. He doesn't owe anyone a single thing. So he's absolutely right about that. But that doesn't mean I have to like him or defend his character. He, He can be judged if he carries on like that. So that's what I'm doing. I'm judging him. <laughs> yeah, I um, I, I kind of have a have love hate relationship with him. I, I don't. I'm not one of those people who is very rigid in terms of what a sportsman or a sports icon needs to be as a role model. And I, I, I do think that a lot of his stuff is calculated. But I think it's typical for that competitive mindset where there are some people who, because you feel it in your life sometimes, you hate losing and you're scared of losing. So sometimes you set yourself up to lose before you really lose to soften the blow. And that's kind of the sports psychology behind it, right? Like that's why some of that stuff happens. It's like a self-sabotaging behavior, but really to soften the blow when you ultimately do lose or when things don't go your way. Um, And you see it with injuries, you see it with like tanking matches and not trying. It's It's a coping mechanism mentally. It is interesting, like the Australian approach to sports sporting identities if i think about the equivalent top player from say 20 30 or 25 years ago like pat rafter right he had cultivated this sort of brand of being like oh the nicest guy on the tour you know and and then you had the cricketers you know the australian cricket team like that all built this brand of like oh they're just good blokes you know and 
Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, they're like the worst sledges you'll ever see in your life, right? But yeah, like they really did invest a lot of money. They really did invest a lot of effort into building their brand as like nice guys or good guys or good blokes or whatever. It's still there. Like, you know, Ash Barty, I think, is a, a perfect example on the other side, like, you know, in terms of female athletes that all around good, you know, everyone loves, you know, unoffensive to 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 everyone. And then you have now this new brand of kind of athletes who, you know, do have a little bit more flair and, and they're a little bit more character and they do go against the grain. They're rebellious and yeah, they're not always like really well received. And it's funny because like Leighton Hewitt was exactly the same when he emerged, like he was like considered the brat, yeah, you know, and then, then he, you know, then he morphed into that role eventually by the end of his career. The elder so. statesman. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. I don't buy into that. I think that's something that's placed on uh, Australian athletes that they need to behave a certain way uphold these values of like mateship and good sportsmen and be a role model. I don't think that's always the case, right? Yeah, but you uh, don't get the Wheatbix sponsorship if you're not um if you're not seen as a good bloke. Mate, everyone's on the carnivore diet now. No one eats Wheatbix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, breakfast is not the most important meal of the day. People have caught on. That's just pure advertising. It's, it's all about the brunch, avocado on toast. Yeah, it's a good, the good fats, right? I wonder like if say Roger Federer at the height of his career, went and started smashing rackets. He probably has, like, I'm just assuming yeah. he hasn't. But He has actually, like, in a documentary, there's this weird thing that happened with Federer where he was a real brat and really struggled with his emotions in the first early parts of his career. And then just something happened where he just gained all this stoic presence and obviously didn't hurt the fact that he was winning matches from that point on anyway. But there's actually lots of video of him just being really petulant and just, like, frowning all the time and smashing rackets and stuff early on in his career. Yeah, his whole brand is now, now yeah. like, he's the is he the rolex guy like i don't know like oh he, he is the rolex guy <laughs> yeah it, it, it's kind of the, the 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 sponsorships underpinning this behavior probably reinforces oh, i better not um flip out right now i mean it's hard to flip out when you're wearing like a wimbledon vest and you play a whole match like <laughs> in a vest as well you just don't really it doesn't have quite the same uh kind of appeal it's like speeding a, a hundy gets right it's not going to it's not going to give you any thrills. Yeah, and actually, like the flip side is like someone like Djokovic, who, by at least the the metrics like available to objectively assess the question, like will probably by the end of his career be able to lay claim to being the greatest player ever. But yeah, not so um, not so likable. He's got the worst of both worlds. You know, he doesn't smash the rackets, but people still think of him as a brat. So just like smash the racket, just go for it. You're going to get the pain anyway. Might as well just act a fool, right? Yeah. So Andy, um, at the end of the, the last episode with your boy, he came in and he gave you a right serving. Have you recovered um, physically from, from calling him Geff? Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's funny because I let him listen to the recording and it's so it amazes me just like how much attention to detail he has in terms of being able to remember very specific things he said because, you know, as I was editing it, I did take out like, you know, a few bits and pieces, not not anything of great materiality, but you know, he, he turns out, oh, why did you take that thing out? And I was like, how do you even remember that you said that? Yeah, I must say that uh, your boy swears a lot more than I thought. So <laughs> I'm glad that you edited all that out. So, so Roger, what did you, um, yeah, what did you think? Did you get a, an insight into uh, what's ahead for your kids? I was actually refreshingly surprised, right? So uh, at a couple of things, right, at how he was able to, how articulate he was. Um, but also that it's not all doom and gloom when it comes to these things, you know. Your, your son obviously loves video games, but I do see a balance in there, right? I don't feel that hand of obsession or addiction being really pulled there. You know, I think that's the narrative and that's the fear more than anything as a parent that it's going to just run away and 
all of a sudden you're going to lose your boy or girl playing to two video games, but it's, it's really not the case. I was thinking on reflection in, in, in terms of wondering exactly what's driving all of this in, in terms of his interest, because the YouTube thing we discussed quite a bit in the episode. And I do think like in his case, the, the YouTube component to it, that's like the equivalent of the water cooler in the schoolyard. You know, it's like, which YouTubers do you do you watch and, and follow? And, you know, I think the, the ones that are like cool in the schoolyard, I mean, he's, he's 10. So like we're talking you know, Relative. primary school, they are kind of YouTubers that, that play video games. So I think like in terms of getting into like a subculture of something, that's where a lot of the interest comes from rather than necessarily the the video games themselves. The classic example of this is like, have you heard of that drink called Prime? Uh, yes, I, I have, unfortunately. And I'm quite big into the UFC. And I think that they have um, struck a deal with the UFC. So they're kind of sponsoring that and I'm seeing it everywhere now. So... Prime is this like classic example of YouTube culture like permeating the schoolyard. So my son, he comes to me and he's like, oh, we need to go to this shop. We need to go to that shop. They've got Prime. Okay. We need to get it. It's like, oh, okay, do we really need to get it? And like they're selling it for like 20 bucks, like a bottle. <laughs> no, really? Like it's just nuts. And like I, I, we bought some for $10. So that was like a, a slightly more See. affordable, but like this, they just like imported or whatever and and it tastes like shit. I had a taste of it. It's the most ordinary drink. Like it, it really is. Like it tastes like medicine, to be honest. So Apparently, for, so it's for like those really are, high caffeine content. So, for those that are wondering what this is, I suppose famous YouTuber Logan Paul has developed this drink, right, and has marketed it to using all his the reach that he's afforded by his online channels, right. And that's the part that I, I really dislike when I can see that really overt hand of marketing influencing kids, right? Like I, I really, well, it influences all of us, but especially kids are vulnerable, right? And um, I remember in the episode, I asked your son, you know, these YouTubers and these famous YouTubers, do, do you want to be one of them, right? Like do you, and he, and he said, yes, right? Because why wouldn't you? They're, like you said, they are the rock stars of the, of the culture. And that kind of worries me too, because you start to realize that it's, it's a very idealistic and they, they look up to them. And that's why I think that they have all this power, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a hard thing sometimes to balance, right? The other thing that really gets me too is that I thought we were done with ads, man. <laughs> and YouTube, it's just, we've all had this experience of trying to like look up a YouTube tutorial or something and there's just a million ads in there and I'm like, ah, oh, it's just the same thing. It's back to TV. You, you, you've got to go YouTube premium. Once you go YouTube premium, you'll never go back. And I promise that wasn't a paid ad. <laughs> What is it? The Ryan's toy review kid, like he earns like thirty million dollars a year or whatever, unboxing toys and yeah, you know, like it, it's and like the dude perfect. It's serious money now. It's not just um, amateur hour. Like it's it's proper proper businesses and it's a it's a whole industry that anyone should scoff at. Okay, so you know what, um, Andy, when we were talking to Teacher Will in that episode, it really started to. I think I, I was speaking about it before. It really launched this avalanche of memories from our schooling and you know we our listeners probably know we went to the same high school and so we have that shared base and everything so we thought today we'd title an episode called middle school and we'd talk a little bit about that period of our lives and moving into university and higher education it's such a um 
you know, important part of finding out who you are. And actually, like a lot of the lessons you learn there, really, I can understand why so many people say that's when you become a, a man or a woman, or you kind of start to lay foundations of like who you will become. So to kick it off, I really wanted to ask you, when you look back at that period, how did you kind of find your place, right? Like it's a bit of a jungle at school. Everyone knows that. But how did you find your way, find your people and, and kind of cultivate yourself in, in that kind of environment? Yeah. So we don't have middle school in Australia, do we? High school. High school. Yeah, not middle school. Just wanted to clarify for our um, non-Australian listeners. Thanks for ruining the name. <laughs> Attending high school in particular, I mean, that's really when you kind of emerge like a stronger sense of self. Like I think towards maybe a little bit like in, in earlier years in school, you probably, you know, have a sense of like who you are and what you're not. But I think that accelerates in high school because you, you get exposed to like a broader suite of kids, like everyone's finding their own interests and their, their own sense of identity and self and who they are. And then, and I think like the, the sense of identity, I think comes from who are your people, right? Like when you're in the schoolyard like I remember you know coming from primary school which we're talking like 12 years old and under into high school like the predominant friendship group that, that you start with are the kids you knew from primary school right because at least in my case like I wanted to go to the high school that my friends were going to and then very quickly like it, it's actually surprisingly like how quick it is for you to kind of ditch your primary school friends and like find new people who kind of better meet your needs and you can relate to. Yeah, upgraded pretty quick. So I actually like did my first like week of high school at a completely different school. Oh, really? I, d I didn't know that. Yeah, no. So I actually wanted to go to the school that we ended up going to, but I, I was out of area, so I didn't actually get into it and it was only like one week into like year seven which is the first year of high school that got a call saying oh you we can actually have you now like because probably some kids didn't show up or whatever uh -huh, so you're a bench warmer yeah so I, I got in like I would have been I would have had a very different life you know potentially if um, well we wouldn't be doing this would we kind of sliding doors moment school such a strange thing too like I think in some ways it does prepare you for life because it is a little micro population right you have to find your your way through um, and there's all these kind of arbitrary rules. Like the bit that really gets me is there's always this urge to want to fit in. But after you've kind of met that, you need to find something to make you special and stand out. So there's like this twin thing of like trying to fit into the group, but then also be special and like find what makes you special. And some people, you know, will try to use sport. Some people, you know, buy music and the things you're interested in, fashion, all sorts of things, right, to try to stand out once you're in. Like, did you have that experience of finding your thing? once you found some friends so you just constantly like you're all changing like you're all these like 12 year olds that turn into like teenagers and then almost adults right almost by the end and so there's all this evolution that happens with with the kids within the school so you then find new friendship groups like all throughout so i think just thinking through from start to finish like i could definitely rule out that i was not going to be like part of like the cool kid groups right I, I didn't know any kids in that kind of you know it wasn't something that i aspired to right i never i I never thought, oh, I really want to like get in with that group because they're the cool kids, right? So that just was never a thing for me and never yeah. an aspiration. So I was I was always genuinely looking for, you know, who like has been friendly, who can I sit next to in classes, a good person that you can talk to. And then that's the first thing. And then the second thing is like you want to be friends with like the people who who you've got common interests with. Like with music, to use that as an example, there's always, you know, kind of you can tell like which kids like which kind of bands or whatever. And that like rock music, that was the the, the popular music. Back then, you get a group of friends who like the same kind of music as you. That's like an input. You're not necessarily hanging around the, the kids who are into like surfing. I was not like into surfing, not into sport. Yeah. 
Uh, and so you find those kids who are like the same as you and that's and then you double down. So I'm going to share a little bit about mine. But before I do, kind of take our listeners on a bit of a journey around how you would describe the cliques or the kind of groups in our school and in that time in the kind of, you know, mid to late 90s. If I had to pluck a figure out of thin air, I'd say there's like 10 kind of discrete sort of groups of friends and stuff. But like it did seem to kind of merge. And by the end of like, say, like year 11, year 12, the 10 became like a lot more consolidated and like everyone was more friendly with one another like and didn't really think of themselves as being in cliques or whatever but you had okay so you had like the the hard ass group and, was, and i remember like making fun of them like because they were all the kids who like thought they were really cool but you know they're always getting in trouble and suspended and all that <laughs> stuff and it was kind of yeah like it was kind of like disparaging to call them the hard ass group because that's it was more like that's how they saw themselves then there was like the then we had the asian group that was definitely a group yeah then we had the nerdy kind of video gamey group so they weren't necessarily academically oriented and there might have been a couple of those like not just one but like a few discrete groups of that kind not necessarily like nerdy in the sense of like book book smarts but yeah definitely like would go home and play like land parties and stuff like that (laughs) then you had the nerdy kind of academically smart kind of groups and there were like boys groups and then girls groups so they weren't combined by that at that age then you had kind of like the popular well i don't know if like they're necessarily popular in some kind of you know, they'd win a poll or whatever, like they'd win like class election or something. But, you know, they did seem to kind of be the slick groups, you know, the ones with all the the hot girls and the hot guys or whatever. And, you know, they were all like dating each other and maybe they had that right. They weren't necessarily like the sporty group per se, but they were all fairly good all-rounders, right? They were just yeah. generally, you know, like to the opposite sex, they would have been, and to the same sex in some cases, they would have been seen as like desirable. I think there was like kind of a quirky, kind of almost like a like a comedic sort of bent like a bit alternative, a bit sort of... Yeah, I know who they, you're thinking about. Already. Like they weren't necessarily nerdy, athletic or whatever, but they were just kind of like, they were They were the group, if you were to think today, like where do all the comedians come from, like that would be the group. Maybe not even comedians, maybe like Saturday Night Live writer's room kind of vibe. Yeah, <laughs> radio presenters, stuff like that. What else? Um, you definitely you're had like... The, sp- you're missing the kind of, you, you said surfing before, I'll give you that little trig in. The surfers were the... I don't know. Is the Christian group? Oh yes. Well, they're Christian. Definitely a Christian group. They seem to be connected all through like Sunday schools and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I think that's a bit of a tour of like the groups. Like, and I'm sure there's like a bit of blue. Oh, there was one group that I would say was the like undercard. So there was like the the Premier League, which was like they were the the boys <laughs> friend group, and then like the girls friend group. So you had the Premier League, which was like a group of boys and a group of girls, and they were like top tier or whatever, and they'd all date each other. But then you'd have like the second division, which would be separate groups, but the boys and the girls, like not quite as cool, not quite as attractive or appealing, and they would like date each other, but not quite to the elite status. And then some would get relegated and you'd have all these yeah (laughs) weird interplays. Yeah, I think you've got most of the groups there. So I probably put like there was like a drama group that that kind of formed maybe a little bit later on. So there was Definitely that. And funnily enough, the academic group would later on merge with the Asian group. So if that doesn't tell you any, everything you need to know, then I don't know what does. <laughs> but you still haven't described a group that you're in because it's hard uh, to define your own group. Yeah, so what I, do you think? I think I just trying to think like I, I think I was in three distinct groups at my time in school. So fucking greedy. So I started off in like one group. 
which maybe had elements of like the comedic group in it. That was the group from like primary school that I like didn't continue off with. Then I joined like a another group, which actually probably if if I could describe the group that I spent most of my time in high school, it would have been like a bit of a a mixed bag of like people. Well, we were the handball group. We played handball at school in the quad in the <laughs> for a bit, maybe not the whole time. Probably like a middle of the road group. So we were just sort of we weren't the cool kids. We weren't like the nerds. We weren't the sporty kids. Maybe had like a bit of everything. We were like the US dollar of currencies at school. Like we we could be like interchangeable with any any group. So in between like us. every person in that group would have had some friendships from all of the other groups in a, in a way that was not as clicky. And then that sort of evolved then well actually like probably a fairly defining moment in high school for me was actually had a friend at high school who who actually died and that was the catalyst for a whole bunch of different groups coming together and there being this like one massive group yeah right i really remember that and um it did break down a lot of a lot of walls for people and just put a lot of things in perspective right and we're all very very fragile and human for a moment in time and that kind of transcended any kind of group barrier. It was um, it was a strange time, you know, and it was towards the end of our school where exams were heating up and all sorts of things, right? A lot of solidarity. I think for me personally, I would say changed me like quite a lot because this friend who passed away, like I probably would have been in his inner circle, right? So this wasn't just someone who was you know, like a peripheral friend or someone that I got along with, but, you know, maybe sat next to in class every now and then. Like this was, you know, someone that like I had, you know, spent like recess and lunch with like every day for like years, right? Yeah. And, you know, he always used to give me a call. We used to like speak on the phone, like after school and stuff like that. So back when that was a thing. So for me, it was quite defining in the sense that it kind of, I was probably in a bit of a shell. It really sort of opened me out of that, I think. Like even like as a 17 year old, still hadn't quite yet found myself, maybe wasn't that confident socially still, but that maybe brought me out of my shell a little bit in the sense that it did kind of bring together a whole bunch of different groups. Yeah. You and I as well, I think. Yeah, I think so. My memories of spending with you were after that. Yeah, that's probably right. I do want to talk just really quickly on the popular kids or the cool kids, right? Because I actually like thinking back to that, right? It's something that everyone in school kind of knows implicitly but it's actually quite hard to define it's like why are they cool and how is that power kind of given to them or placed on them by the rest of the school and how much of it is because you know maybe they are attractive or this and that but when I look back it's not really any one thing it's like a very strange it's a hard concept to put your hands around like why people place them on that pedestal right yeah yeah no, I think that's a good question to unpack because, like, it's a little bit like currency, right? Like, why is a greenback dollar bill? Why is it worth it like a dollar? It's just a piece of paper, really. The you know what what's the thing that makes it valuable? It's not the paper itself is worthless. The value of it comes because other people value it, and I think that's a little bit the same when it comes to popularity in school. Like, if you're in that group, you've got a halo effect, and other kids want to associate with you because they then get like a bit of your halo, and then they they're trading in kind of status credits, if you like, that, you know, kind of give like one group like a bit of incumbency on, on that in that they yeah. perceive to be the cool kids or whatever. It's so weird though, right? Because when I look at 
that group of people who were considered to be in that, you know, cool kids, popular kids, like when you looked at them individually, you know, at least from where, when I was back then, I wouldn't want to trade places for, for any of them. In fact, some of them famously had very poor circumstances and things like that, right? Like, and it is strange to me sometimes apart from, like, I understand the attractiveness side and being this idea of, oh, you know, like there are men and women in there, you know, boys and girls in there that wouldn't find me attractive or let me kind of date them. Like, I get that part. But if you took away the kind of sexuality of it, I think like it's it's a harder it's a harder sell for me. It's not so much them individually that their situation. It's more like that group is like associated with it, and it's probably also like a confidence thing. Like I think what probably if you take like the most confident group of kids in a school, it, like in a year group, and then let's let's say they all seek each other out, and then they're confident, right? They don't have any self inhibitions or and they might not be the most attractive kids in the school there might be nothing about them that sets them out other than that they're confident right but that's usually the thing that's <laughs> that that keeps them together right they're willing to dominate other kids right, in that way and this and they and it's accepted it's a mutual understanding yeah i get the i get the whole point about the hierarchy but i know a lot of people that were in that drama circle they were really like ultra confident and they would always speak up and they would always say things in class or whatever it may be but they were ridiculed for it in a, in a group <laughs> setting and like i don't know probably know a few people who i'm talking about but i think it's like it's confidence or outspokenness plus social backing right like being able to have yeah that kind of commitment around other people are, other people buy into the narrative that yeah you are the cool kid and that like not just that but like i want to i want a piece of your halo it's a bit like people acknowledging like america you are the the dominant nation state i, I accept you as as my superior i want your protection and your cover so i'm going to submit to you and i'll do what you ask but just make sure you, you you've got my back right yeah reserve currency <laughs> so maybe to move on then you know we've talked about kind of different groups i'm interested to hear your thoughts and maybe even experiences uh, with bullying because that's obviously a huge part of growing up and being in a school setting where it's like survival of the fittest or whatever how did you experience it have you seen anything bad were you bullied were you the bully or were you not exposed to it i was on a boundary moving from my primary or junior school into high school right so a lot of the people that i went to school with didn't join me and i came into our school not knowing pretty much anyone i had three people that i knew Right. So I had to find my way and I actually have memories of probably just clinging to this one person like that I that I knew from my old school at lunch times and stuff and recess. And we, we couldn't be more different, you know, like we were both Asian, but he was like, you know, <laughs> proper Asian. And um we just didn't have anything in common. Then slowly over time, of course, you make friends and I found kind of my group and I found my acceptance into it. And like you said, I kind of left that initial friend, which I looking back I do feel a little bit bad about now. But anyway, I found this group of people and I kind of gravitated towards a group that was um, quite wild. Uh, it was full of kind of skaters and just like real kind of boys, boys, and a little bit kind of naughty or misbehaving and, and found laughs in just being a bit a bit out there. And I saw it was like so different from my primary school, my small school experience. The, the guys were like constantly piling onto each other and like name calling and, and just playing pranks on each other. And it was wild. It was like a frat house. And I saw this weird thing develop inside the group, which was like a mini hierarchy. 
And lucky I was kind of on the higher end of that. So I wasn't a, a victim, so to speak, of some of the bullying. And some of it was like part of showing that you're inside the group as well, right? It wasn't all just horrible bullying, but there was definitely people that were the heel or tied to the whipping post in a habitual way. So I kind of reflect on it as like bullying happens inside groups to enforce the hierarchy within that group. And then there's the more kind of shocking bullying that happens between groups. And I think that happens without the context of any kind of longer lasting long-term friendship or your place in it, you know, acceptance, nothing like that. It's just purely like kid on kid animosity. And um, unfortunately, I did see a bit of that, right? So pretty much what happened was there was a, a bloke in our school and he had some physical issues. Apart from that, you know, he was, he was a great guy and everything like that. But of course, at high school, you know, it's brutal. And I remember we were in between classes and there was just a group of us walking around and these guys kind of like came up to him literally picked him up and um, they like threw him in a dumpster. Like a lot of us saw it happen and we were kind of, you know, there were people kind of yelling at them to to stop and to, to like, you know, just that they were idiots and stuff like that. But none of us actually did anything about it. And it's something that like I, I you know, I actually I can like still really recall the, the scene in my head. And it's something that, yeah, it's something that I feel really ashamed of that I didn't do, I personally didn't do something about it. The problem with those situations is that by all means, like if you were the one that instigated the dumpster bin and, you know, you were carrying him, you were one of the ones carrying him or whatever, then that's quite different. But I think if you're like, like then, even if you find like, because I mean, it, it, the psychology of these situations is that the only reason those kids are doing that is because they are in turn being rewarded somehow, and it might be that they're rewarded like because other kids are laughing and egging them on, or it might be because in like a zero sum sense, like it by putting someone else down, they they kind of feel like they get some extra kind of, it boosts them somehow. And all, I think all of these incidents have to be viewed through that lens. I, I don't think you can expect that you would have done anything unless you're like one of the you know, highest status kids in the school or whatever, you know, a high degree of virtue at the time, because, you know, let's, let's face it, like, kids at that age don't tend to be virtuous then you wouldn't have like so i mean that's just that's how bullying happens yeah yeah the thing that really got me actually and i remember at the time thinking this it was the people that did that to that person and threw threw him in the dumpster they weren't people that i was like physically afraid of confronting so it wasn't it wasn't that problem which was kind of even more puzzling to me because you kind of almost think oh well if they're not more popular than you or you're not, they're not part of your group and so you're worried about being excluded and you're not worried about the physical elements, then why do you still not do anything about it? It's always a case of like, where's the line, right? It might start off being like, oh, this will be a funny prank or whatever, but then it crosses some line and it happens and the people doing it don't even realise when the line's been crossed. So like to give like another example where there was one one of my friends and he was sort of someone who like I was friends with him and I definitely saw him in through in that way. But he was sort of a kid that did cop a bit of playful bullying, right? And and I say playful bullying because like it wasn't that kind of really cutting sort of bullying it was just more let's have a joke together but by the way you'll always be the victim of it right (laughs) so one of the things that would always happen this was by the time like we had like our driver's license so he would drive his car to school every single day someone would put his windscreen wipers up and kind of mess with his car right and like it was all kind of funny or whatever but like eventually it became fuck off stop doing that right yeah and I guess so, like, there's always these kind of, now this is, sounds like a bit past that, but I think often with all of these, like, maybe even the people, I, I don't know who, who the people who, who did them and what they're like, 
but that you know it's it's like that hazing thing right it's like oh we'll do something to you that's actually really quite bad yeah. but like it's it's almost like oh but in doing this we're kind of bonding it's, it's just it's really complicated there's there's that but this one like i said if you were there it was a because of the power dynamics and the fact that you know there was a physical disadvantage uh, like a motor neuron disadvantage, it was just like punching down in the most awful way. You know, if I reflect on my own experience with with bullying, can't really remember any like incidents of like where I was bullied. And like to be honest, like I probably had some like natural advantages in that respect. In that at school I was kind of bigger than other kids. I don't think anyone ever. I was going to throw you into a dumpster. Yeah, like I, I don't think anyone ever looked at me and oh, here's someone I'd be happy to like take on in a physical fight, for example. Yeah. So did think, you ever see anything bad though, Andy? Oh well, well I was just gonna say there was one kid. I don't think he was ever really like considered by the rest of us as part of the group, but he spent a lot of time with us, and at the same time, we all kind of like liked him to be around us because we kind of enjoyed. So the whipping post. It was kind of like we didn't necessarily have him around us on equal terms, but there were a lot of laughs to be had, right, yeah. at his expense. And that's like, and I would have contributed to that, uh, but I wasn't the only one. It, it is almost like that you're all doing it is the thing that empowers you. It's like mob yeah. mentality, right? And I definitely, I definitely remember like an experience with that at school. It's a tough one. And I think like part of not, and it's a horrible fact of high school life or probably life in general, for, especially for boys though, is that sometimes the best way to avoid being bullied is to be very assertive and aggressive. And what's on the boundary of those behaving that way is potentially you might bully someone else. And I think that's the thing too, right? Like by, by being more aggressive and, and kind of saying, you're kind of saying to everyone, you know, you're not. You're not weak. And as a result, sometimes there is a bit of collateral damage, right? And that's a tough, that's a tough place. So why don't we why don't we move on? We've already touched on this a little bit about how, you know, the story of high school is the story about of growing up, right? And like changing who you are as a person and so on. Sorry to interrupt the podcast. Andy and I have really enjoyed doing this. And while we don't want your money or anything like that, it's been great to see the number of our listeners grow since we kicked things off last year. The best way for us to reach more people is word of mouth. So if you'd like to support us, then we'd be really grateful if you could share it to a friend or someone that you think might enjoy the podcast. We know there's a conversation for everyone. So please pick an episode that you think that they'd like and share away. That ends our shameless plug and we'll return you now back to the episode. How did you feel as you moved towards the end of school and essentially transitioned to university? Obviously, school's a lot more restrictive than university. You go from having highly regimented, bell goes at this time and you've got a teacher whipping you on your ass if you're not like making your way to wherever you're supposed to be. You're basically in a prison, you know. <laughs> I mean, now they've got like big fences. I don't think they did at the time we were at school, but now they've got like basically these big high gates. I'm surprised they don't have barbed wire. It is a very, it, it, it's probably as close a thing to a to prison as any of us free souls will ever experience, right? Which is like, such an irony because I do kind of have really fond memories of being in school, like, and especially in that, even that kind of environment where it is quite sort Regimented. of- Regimented. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I don't necessarily view it in a negative light, but no, look, I guess to the to the question of transition, like, obviously you've got to like fend for yourself in a way that you didn't, you, you didn't have to at school. Like, I was always pretty independent 
like, and I really enjoyed being independent at school. So, like, I wanted to, like, make my own way to and from school. Like, I didn't really want lifts or anything like that. Even when I had lifts available to me, like, I was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm, I'm doing it all myself. I had jobs. Like, I worked pretty much from the time I could and I was working, like, pretty like, – I was working, like, probably 15, 20 hours a week while I was at school. I reckon wow. like I would do, I would, yeah, I probably would, would have done, yeah, definitely 15 hours at least, maybe 20 some weeks. You know, when you're in, when you're working, you're sort of, you're treated at like an adult, even if you're not. So I probably in some areas transitioned fairly, it was fairly seamless, but in other ways it wasn't seamless. So one of the ways it wasn't seamless is like definitely having to motivate yourself to kind of get into, oh, what is it, what is it to like get up at a certain hour and <laughs> go into like a, a lecture that I actually don't have to go to, that no one marks attendance and will, you know, there's no cost if I don't go. And there was definitely like a period where I don't, I don't know if you had this, but like I felt really burnt out, I think, after school. Like I've, I felt like, you know, I'd, I'd done all the hard yards. I got like good grades or whatever. And then by the time I got to uni, I was sort of like, okay, I've got my, I'm in uni now. I don't want to, I'm not like aiming for like the best, which is what I was when I was at school. Yeah. So a bit of um, some bits good, some bits not so good, but like, of course you, you, you work it all out in the end, right? Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I think um, there's obviously less structure moving into university, right? I think that's the, the main thing that for the people who have learned to self-regulate, they're obviously going to have a much easier time at university than school, which is very regimented. I think it's like a freedom thing, right? Like man is condemned to be free in a very small microcosm of that. It's like having to do things for yourself, um, especially, you know, when the system you've come from was really built for you, you know, for kids in general is, is a challenge, but it's not something that really was an issue for me. And in fact, I picked a course that was very regimented because it was a cooperative scholarship where you had to to work at a, co at a corporate sponsor as well as do your uni. So I didn't have that normal experience with me. I do know what you mean about the burnout, though. I think that I still think to this day, the pressure that you're under as a student taking their final exams is unlike pretty much any other major test that you'll have in your life. The pressure and also the rhetoric and the, the feeling of like, if I fuck this up, like that's it. There are no do-overs, right? And my opportunities in life, the way my parents will think of me, the the people that, you know, the lifestyle that I'll be able to afford for myself is all about my performance here, right? And I don't think there's many other places in your life that you're tested like that and given a, a direct ranking against your peers yeah. other than maybe competitive sport. Well, the, the irony about all of that is that it's actually not as determinative as what I think kids at school think it is. Like, I think there is this this sense of that this will determine your future life and prospects. But like the reality is that's, you know, that's kind of not true. Although I think what is true is that if you're a kid who isn't willing to put in the effort at that time, you're probably not someone who's going to then make it up at some other point in the future. Like it's, it's like, it's, it's self-apparent that a kid who isn't motivated to try hard and do well at school is probably not someone who, you know, in, in three years' time is going to suddenly turn on some switch and then start kicking goals at like in whatever course they've enrolled in. I think where it's really apparent is like this idea of, oh, which course you can do, which university course yeah. can you study? And then that's like we were talking last week and how like people kind of get a thirst for something. Like I really like academically started to get that thirst to like really try and succeed from about year nine because uh, i i worked out that like hey 
I'm actually like, I'm beating these other kids. So I kind of had like however many years of, of doing it and got all this kind of positive reinforcement from it. But then by the time we like finished school, it was actually less about that because like that wasn't on the table anymore. It was, it was just like, no, you get the mark, you pass, you then do the next subject and you graduate and you get a degree and then you apply for a job. It wasn't like you get to show your superiority, or like, which yeah. was which which was really there at school because they give you rankings and you obviously your your mark at school is is essentially like a ranking, like out of a, like how many people out of a hundred do you beat, basically. Yes, it's it's crazy. I mean, mine was a similar story too. I actually did really poorly until about year ten, and that's because I was just a little bit delinquent. And then I I snapped back to to my potential, I suppose, from year ten on, and I, I and I did well, but. I think my thing was more, it was a crisis of the system when I left. I like, I got a really good mark, which afforded me like heaps of options, right? But to be honest, I still felt so constrained about what I could actually do as a living. And coming from like, you know, Asian parents and stuff, it's not really about what your passion is or anything like that. It's about what is a good job, you know, and what can provide you with a decent lifestyle and everything. Yeah, I felt really trapped by it all. I just felt like I ended up doing something that I thought was the right thing to do, not what I wanted to do. But like what, it happened so but why did you feel trapped? Did you feel trapped because you felt there was an expectation that you could only choose among the like the choice set of options that you could only choose some of those options or Yeah. My sister actually got a scholarship, a cooperative scholarship on the accounting side and I got one on the business IT side and I was kind of pushed to apply for it. And only thirty people a year get it from, you know, thousands and thousands of applicants around the country because it essentially pays for your degree and then some. And by the time I got that, it was just so much pressure to do the right thing, make the right choice to to do it right, and especially because I didn't have another answer locked and ready to go. So I was kind of mad at myself for not investing more time in working out what I wanted to do and also resentful that the people around me and the system didn't spend more time helping me find that. I think that's like a fairly common experience though. Like, I mean, I'm probably very similar to you in that the course that I decided I'd, I'd want to do during high school, like I, I got like my mark was higher and then I felt, well, I've got to now add law to it or something. So I ended up adding law just purely because I felt like, well, I, I kind of have to, I've got this mark. And I did law for like a week and I'm like, I'm not doing this. I never wanted to do this. And then I, with, I withdrew from the law thing. But like, I, I suppose where I'm going with this is that during school, like I had no guidance, like I had no, like nothing from school, like school didn't kind of counsel me on, have you thought about this? If you Like there was just- Yeah. Did I tell you about you my, my trip to the careers counselor? <laughs> so we, we had obviously- the one career counselor at our school and my god they were terrible right it should be such a, f- a freaking important role right it's sent you, you you know setting the direction for these kids to go and you, you should be helping them find their passion and all these kind of things i went in there and i was like they do this kind of hollow assessment she looks at your grades and the subjects that you're in in your final years of school and she's like mm, 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 okay judging by the subjects you're enrolled in, the the term for what you're going to be when you leave school is a suit. And I'm like, excuse me? And she's like, you'll be suited for white collar jobs. And then I was then I was asking her obviously about like scholarships and stuff and what kind of programs there were. And she's like, oh, I know that, you know, some universities offer scholarships. And then she gave me like a phone number to call each of the offices. 
and that's it and i left and it was like just so freaking horrible that like that's that's what it is right i mean in hindsight especially very very envious of one of our mutual friends who i think probably had a lot of dinner time discussions within his family about what he was going to do my parents are of a generation where they got their career paths their jobs it was a different era where going to university wasn't necessarily the thing i mean you go to university if you want to become an academic but not if you want a job so my parents probably won't equip themselves to have those kind of conversations with me they could only only advise from their own experiences in life so can't even imagine what their career counselor would have been like (laughs) yeah well that's right but this is the immigrant mentality right it's like stop worrying about your airy fairy western passions and start thinking about like whether this job has good income <laughs> you know and like it's that that's what you need to worry about like don't get lost in your head very few people have a career and a passion most of us just have jobs and that's what you should kind of aspire to and feel comfortable and lead a hey good man, life i'd love that i'd love to get that advice like you want to <laughs> like earn a good income this is what you need to do that's what like i was like you know create like you wanted that's... you wanted that that's not the pep talk you want no, that totally is a fa- like. I wanted someone to tell me, kill all your dreams and passions now. You're going to be a salary man, and here's how you can get there quicker. And, and the only not time about <laughs> the only time it was good to be a salary man was in Japan in the 90s. Man, that's the only time. <laughs> but but you know um, what I mean, right? I'm envious of that friend too, by the way, because I think the guidance is what you crave, right? And I'm also really jealous of people who went on a gap year, right? And regardless of whatever they did, go to like, you know, the Lombrow tent in Oktoberfest or whatever, I think you just need a bit of time, right? Like it happens, the transition happens so quick from getting your mark to enrolling into university. It's in a blink of an eye, right? And yes, you can pull out and you can change, but most people don't. Yeah, I always always remember like, especially in that period after school finished, like I think it was probably the longest break you ever have because it's like school finishes earlier because you've finished your exams or whatever and yet you haven't started uni and I always remember our friendship group we were always sort of free and doing stuff and I remember you were working like in your in your new job, job or whatever oh my God. and it was like oh fuck man why would you do that to yourself yeah yeah I know don't yeah I mean I don't want to <laughs> get into that so let's now talk about the other big elephant in the room when you're growing up is, well, obviously you go through puberty and you start to be more interested in the opposite sex. Well, at least some of us. It's so freaking hard these days, isn't it? You just you used to be able to say, oh, you got into girls. You can't even do that anymore. <laughs> Tell me about your experience with, and I know that in your case, with girls. Well, I've got a surprise for you. No, no, sorry. Um, <laughs> I've been well, really can't rule that out now. <laughs> I've been really enjoying this conversation, and I think this I've been looking forward to this part too because you know this is like a big part of high school, right? It's about becoming a man and like the attraction and working out the opposite sex. Talking about that, do you remember sex education at high school? Do you remember the the video that we had to watch with the cartoons explaining like the changes to your body and all that kind of stuff? Def- I definitely remember the banana. <laughs> <laughs> there was this um, horrible animation that they made us watch. And I just remember, all I remember it was like there's this cartoon boy and he's like jumping on like a diving board. And as he's like jumping, like they make that kind of door stopper sound and he gets a boner. <laughs> and, it's like, and it's just about all these changes that you go through. Yeah, look, when I think about my experience with relationships and the opposite sex in high school, 
you know, what comes to mind is obviously I had I had a pretty long-term relationship from midway through high school all the way to probably just the end of high school with the with the same girl. And it just like was so formative. It's it taught me so many things about myself, right? And like this idea of kind of, you know, loving and caring for someone and then caring for you back and this kind of like the way reciprocation works and and it teaches you these lessons about codependency and how much you open yourself up to be vulnerable and all these kind of things. And just like this kind of real acceptance that comes from being in a relationship when you're in high school. Like high school is such a brutal place when you're a kid, right? It's so hard to like care about things and to show weakness and vulnerability. But when you're a relationship and you have that reciprocated it's like the greatest feeling in the world it's like all the validation you ever need right like the first time that you start to like feel accepted and desired i don't know what was what was your kind of experience with it i I didn't have any kind of relationships at school so i never really saw it like i don't think and the groups that I was in also weren't kind of groups where like all the boys had girlfriends, right? Like it was all like an equilibrium. So I was just kind of like, I was a little bit like in my shell and wasn't really chasing. I do remember like one of my memories of like year seven though is like I, I said earlier, like I was probably one of the taller boys in year seven. Yeah. And I remember kind of in year seven, just starting in year seven where like, and I probably didn't even know what to do with it, but like. It did seem like there were some girls wanting to talk to me or something like that. You know, especially like girls at that age, they're quite kind of boy crazy and stuff like that. Can you tell me, do you have a memory of the first time you're like, oh, like I find girls hot? Do you, do you remember like that when that first kind of like teenage horniness started for you? Oh, Pamela Anderson, Baywatch. <laughs> No, no, it, it, but, no, but seriously, but it, do, you, but, do you have a memory of like, oh, uh, this is actually now a priority in my life? Like, actually, well, I, I don't think it was ever like I was quite timid, right? So I don't think it was ever like a priority, like, you know, like want almost wanting to like, well, you know, if a girl comes to me and like is clearly interested in me, then maybe I'll entertain it. But I, I'm too shit scared to go and like approach a girl or something like that. So that was probably my attitude going through school but at the same time like when I look at an interest in girls like absolutely like you've got so many bloody hormones at that age right of course you like find girls like attractive in terms of like when it started I guess the bit that's tricky for me is I don't I can't draw like a distinction between the cultural side of like boys like girls right so like and you know like I'm actually mentioned the Baywatch example because like I do think there was this like cultural construct of like yeah you like women in yeah this kind of beach babe yeah i think it's a it's a funny thing like there was a period literally between finishing primary school and then joining high school where something absolutely switched to me obviously starting puberty where it just occupied a different part of my mind now and um I remember actually like in a weird way, a lot of my memories go back to um, Lara Croft in Tomb Raider. <laughs> like there was something about it. It was like, that was even stranger back then because it was like all prisms and like the 3D animation was terrible. It was like a Minecraft. <laughs> oh, you you were yeah. talking a couple of episodes ago that um, how much you're into AI and um, sex robots. So that's totally um, fits your profile. <laughs> I know. I think my cousin bought me like a like a Tomb Raider calendar as well. Yeah, it was just something about the whole Lara Croft thing that really got me going. Yeah, I was just like a different person come high school. Um, things had changed, like my motivations had changed and stuff. And um, going through a long-term relationship at school, it also did kind of alienate you a little bit to the people who weren't in relationships. And therefore you spent less time, you had less available time cultivating like your friendships 
because of that, because of all the energy and, and kind of attention that was going into being, you know, having a girlfriend in high school, which my parents absolutely hated, right? Like they were very much strong Asian parents that were just like, you know, you shouldn't be having any relationship. Your job is to study and that's it. This this woman is a distraction. I remember my mom, she was so brutal. She was like, like, it's a waste of time. You know, like no one marries their like high school sweetheart. Like this will this will end. This will blow through. And of course, when you're young, you just like oh, you don't know, you don't understand. <laughs> no one's ever loved like me before. But but and it was this. I remember actually at my sister's wedding, she was there, and my mum was like pulled me aside and was like, she can't be in the photos because she's not going to be around. Like <laughs> afterwards, um, so. Yeah, she called that one. I mean, it was a very high percentage play, but uh, well, I'm just saying. Did she end up in the photos or did you stick up for it? I try, I tried to, but I think there was one like non-professional one that she was in. What's the craziest stuff you remember growing up? Oh, there, there, there are so many and actually some of them I feel quite embarrassed sharing, to be honest. But um, one does come to mind that was just really like bordering on, you know, dangerous and criminal. <laughs> and, I feel quite, you know, funny about it now, but I had a friend actually who lived on my street and we just got up to this. It was like one of those parts of your life where you just spend all your time out in the street, you know, like on your bikes and whatever. And on a couple of sleepovers with him, we started to kind of really get into this phase, like a pyromaniac phase. And we used to love making little fireworks and things like that. And that graduated to essentially making soda bombs, right? And do you know what that is? Is this, this is like with the little soda stream sort of capsules, right? The, the big gas canisters that you load into soda streams, they were like little tiny ones. Yeah, right? which they but don't sell the- anymore because kids like you <laughs> built these soda bombs, right? Yeah, so it's like this little capsule, maybe the size of your finger, and um, is full of carbonated gas, right? And what you could do is you could put it in a little matchbox and then crush up all the sparkler dust around it and then use one for the fuse and then you kind of wrap it wrap it up and then light the sparkler. And then obviously the sparkler would ignite all the sparkler dust, heat up the box of matches which the soda bulb was in and then it would explode, kind of making a bomb. And it was a kind of thing that you did where you put it into a suburban letterbox and it would blow, <laughs> it would blow off the letterbox. And so obviously horrible, property damage, all this kind of thing. And I remember we graduated to that one time in this kind of side street and we, we lit it in, you know, in the middle of the night or something. We were meant to be asleep and we were watching it. And usually it would just make kind of like a, a bit of a show, but this time I don't know what happened. I think maybe we made it a little bit more potent than before, but the whole thing, like the whole top of the letterbox, just like absolutely blew off and like landed 15 meters down the street, destroyed. And we were just like, oh shit, like that moment where you know you've gone too far. And we just like ran in and obviously there was like a whole commotion in the street. People came out and we were just like ran back to my friend's house where we were meant to be sleeping and just pretended to be asleep and, and just kind of like hid out and like with nervous energy of, you know, cops knocking on the door. And then the next day, like my friend kind of got over it. It was like a close call, but it was just, you know, a story to tell, but it really started to weigh on me. <laughs> I walked past there and there was just like a smoldering lump of wood where the letterbox was. And I felt so bad that I, um, I wanted to like pay for it. I kind of like felt like if I tried to give the money to the owner of that house, I would, you know, get in, in a lot of trouble. We devised a plan to sneak back out there in the middle of the night the next night. And um we like duct taped my thirty dollars plus another kind of fifteen dollars from my friend just on the smoldering stump. So <laughs> So he probably the owner woke up, you know, in his poor, you know, letterbox, which is a smoldering stump of wood and like $45 just strapped to it with duct tape. 
So, you know, it's the thought that counts, I suppose. But um, that story does come to mind, which was uh, hilarious looking back, but obviously very dangerous um, and very horrible looking back at it now as an adult. What's the uh, statute of limitations on letterbox vandalism? The other one I was, I was going to tell was uh, we had a bucket, two buckets full to the brim full of water bombs. And we were just like driving around at night, like 10 p.m. and just throwing the water bombs at people in the street, like out, out of the moving car. And we got one of the guys like really bad, like in the face almost. And then we were turning around and coming back and the same guy had like waited for us to turn around and he was standing in the middle of the road. And we're like, oh shit, everyone wind your windows up. But she's like, no, nah, no, nah, I want to get him again. She wound the window right down right all the way and like was half hanging out the car, like holding the water bomb, like, <laughs> like taunting him, saying, I'm going to fucking get you. And the guy like pegged a full water bottle as hard as he could and it came through and hit her in the face like bottle ended and we were like oh shit we're gonna take you to the hospital like she had this massive egg on it hit her on the forehead through the car window and we're just like oh that's the same feeling of like this was fun we've obviously gone too far <laughs> we're, re- we're really in trouble now and actually we think you have a concussion and it's going to be a horrible situation to explain to the authorities <laughs> of why you've sustained this injury I got hit in the head by a water bottle. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't doing anything. It was unprovoked. (laughs) So given everything we've talked about today and experiences at high school, like, do you ever look back and think, you know, what you'd like to do differently? If I could get into a time machine and advise my younger self, I think the first thing is like, I would, I would really like, because I wasn't very confident socially, I think as a younger kid. So I think I was probably worried a lot about what other people might think. So then I would withdraw from higher risk situations where I might kind of lose a bit of face or whatever. So I would probably give myself a bit of a kick up the bum and say, hey, just like, don't do that. Just go and have a crack and have a go. Like, don't assume like, well, what's the worst that could happen? And maybe embolden myself a bit more to to fail, to try things even if I would fail and and not not to care about so much but what other people might think um, or say. So I think that would be probably the number one thing. How about yourself? Yeah, I think maybe I've, I've already hinted that I think I would spend a bit more time just by myself and outside of a relationship. So I think that's um, number one for some of the reasons that I mentioned. You know, it's a time that I think you really should be trying to build your your identity in yourself. And, and that includes like how you treat your friends and how you prioritize them. And I think that's very hard to do when you are, you know, that age and in, totally absorbed in a long-term and really intense kind of relationship. So I think that's part of it for me. And, and, you know, I agree with you too. I think that uh, just really understanding where, where you're being influenced and what you're trying to kind of achieve with your behavior. I think if you have that self-reflection, you know, like that can really explain to you a lot of the reasons why you're doing the things you're doing. And they may not always be as, you know, paint as nice pictures as you think. Cool. What are the fondest memories you have? One of the fondest memories I had was towards the end of school when you start to mix in, you know, being irresponsible in the form of house parties. And I just remember the general silliness, like the the prankster and everyone comes out and and, um, innocent fun. I just remember uh, being in a car throwing out frozen smiley potato smileys at Ruben (laughs) Snoffberger's house. You know what, Andy? Um, I actually cooked those for my um, for my daughter the other weekend, and as I took them out of the packet, and um, I didn't know I had bought those. I thought I bought just like potato gems or something. Oh, potato and, gems, uh, much better, much better. And then these smileys came out, and it took me straight back to. <laughs> and I tell you, after eating them, I'm not surprised that we threw them out of the car.